Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. So millions of Canadians and Americans are, are struggling with chronic pain, chronic agony. You've heard patients on this program. And when we first started talking about it, we actually had doctors come on and talk about the situation We talk about how they were being challenged by their medical supervisors, their supervisory bodies, the colleges of physicians and surgeons. They won't do that now. They won't come on now, but they they used to. And I was actually challenged by the uh, former federal health minister, Jane Philpott. Her press secretary called me, 2018. You can find it online. Actually, you can find it uh, if you just scroll back far enough. I think you can find it. On our webpage. Anyway, I was uh, I was contacted by her press secretary and said the minister wants to challenge you on what you're talking about with uh, about pain patients and medications and and opioids. I don't think the minister, about three minutes into the interview, really wanted to do it anymore. And uh, I did ask her one question that she struggled with. I said, Minister, what do you think that pain patients are addicted to? What do you think they're addicted to? Just give me an answer. She didn't, so I did. I said they're addicted to living without pain or as little pain as possible. So millions of people in the United States and Canada are suffering and struggling with chronic pain. There's a disturbing story that came out of Georgia about Danny and Gretchen Elliott. Danny, 61 years of age, chronic pain patient, was electrocuted while standing in water. And his 59-year-old stage 4 breast cancer wife, they committed suicide together a few weeks ago. And the reason, because Danny, during his electrocution, suffered for after his electrocution, suffered from constant chronic agony, which was controlled somewhat by long-prescribed opioid pain medications, more than two decades, okay? More than two decades. This medication was then denied after the United States DEA Drug Enforcement Agency forced his pain physician out of practice. Danny could no longer find a doctor to provide the pain meds he needed to somewhat ease his agony, and so he and his wife shot themselves. And I've talked to widows and orphans of pain patients who took their own lives on this program. Once in a while, I come across a doctor who really cares, like Dr. Hans Clark in Toronto at the University Health Network pain specialist. I've been on this program with Kate Nicholson. And I also have been hearing about Dr. and Professor Stefan Curtis, primary care physician who specializes in addiction medicine. He's a leading advocate against aggressive reductions in long-term opioid prescriptions in the United States. And he conducted a suicide study of pain patients. He's a professor at the University of Alabama Hearsink School of Medicine. Dr. Curtis, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you for putting up with my rather lengthy intro. How are you, sir? I'm fine, and it's a pleasure to be uh, present for you and for your listeners. Mr. Um, Mr. Elliot, and how typical is he of someone who struggles, is denied his medication, and feels completely bewildered and helpless? I think feeling bewildered and helpless is actually a really common experience for people who are cut off of medication uh, for long-term pain. 
What is a little different is that the majority do not die by suicide. And so there's a level of uh, modesty I have about understanding the actual deaths by suicide. But because there have been so many people cut off in the United States, um, I and my team and my collaborators have been just flooded with stories of people feeling bewildered, helpless, abandoned, um, and seen as less than others. Could you provide us then with an oversight of the issue of chronic pain, chronic agony, as you have been able and your team has been able to assemble? What's the reality of it? Because I I find that when I talk to chronic pain patients, sometimes they don't want to go on the air anymore because they're afraid of exposing themselves. If they do expose themselves, they say, maybe I'll be targeted and I won't be able to have my medications any longer. I couldn't live that way. What's the overall picture, Dr. Cortez? I think probably we got to talk about it at a medical level and then at a policy level. So at a medical level, I believe, and this may be something some of your listeners don't agree with, but I, I believe that at least in the United States, we took the risks of our own opioid prescriptions too casually for a number of years. And we uh, gave these medicines more faith than they were due. And we were casual. And then... Um, at a certain point in time, roughly 2012, in the United States, we began to reduce, and we took the uh, the needs of patients with long-term pain casually, and we also were uh, reckless in terms of how we reduced and how we cut those patients off. And we didn't realize that for some people, those medicines were making an enormous difference. And we didn't realize that where dependence is present, even if we wish the pills had not been started, that stopping or reducing was itself a potentially reckless act that could do immense harm to a person. The reason that we did that is probably complicated, but in the policy sphere in the US, physicians felt uh, embarrassed, ashamed, confused, ill-educated, and also afraid of legal and professional attention that came to them as a result of their prescriptions. And that is certainly part of the picture with what happened with Mr. Elliot and his spouse. Yeah. I know from a Canadian survey done by the Chronic Pain Association that uh, suicide ideation is increasing. And I'm, I'm not, I don't want to focus on suicide. It's just unavoidable. When you hear a case like, like that of um, Mr. Elliot and his wife, it, it just, it's so disturbing. And you ask yourself, why do we allow this to, to happen? And I understand the the ease with which uh, opioids were, were prescribed at, at one time. And then in 2016, the CDC in your country issued its guidelines. They were essentially adopted without any, um, without any changes in Canada. And, and subsequently, as I understand it, uh, Professor Cortez, the American Medical Association and the Center for Disease Control have said the guidelines did not accomplish what was expected or what they wanted them to accomplish. Dr. Curtis, can you just then provide us your perspective on uh, on these CDC guidelines of 2016, the response from the Medical Association over time, as well as the uh, the AMA, and, and what your studies are telling you where we need to go to properly and effectively take care of the chronic pain patients, the millions who exist on this continent. The CDC guideline of 2016 uh, declared a, and urged a level of caution in prescribing. However, it also set uh, some very bold, bright lines to suggest the difference between appropriate and inappropriate prescribing. And in so doing, the CDC understood that those bright lines were going to be used both by insurers in the United States and by law enforcement 
to alter uh, the conditions of practice. So unfortunately, uh, if you read the text of the guideline at one level, it's quite temperate. However, the bright lines distinguishing doses that are good versus doses that are bad uh, were understood from the start to be likely to be implemented in a vigorous, uh, careless, and ultimately reckless way. And that's exactly what happened. So uh, physicians, medical boards, quality metric agencies, insurers, and law enforcement investigators uh, all collectively reduced abruptly. And I think the hope was that that would not happen. I think if you would ask the writers, they would have said, I don't think that should happen. But in a way, the document was written to make that more likely to happen. And what's in the, in the unfolding period that we've seen, uh, prescription opioids have gone down immensely. Deaths by overdose to opioid uh, drugs have gone up immensely. Patients with long-term pain who are on prescription opioids in the U.S. at least increasingly are not accepted in clinical practices and are not seen as desirable patients to have, and they feel disempowered and beleaguered, as you would expect. The CDC itself does not control all the other actors on the table. Its words are merely referenced by those actors as they justify their course of action. So there's a bit of a game that goes on where one says the CDC guideline caused something bad to happen. And they say, well, it's just a guideline. We didn't say that it should be handled in a reckless fashion. But when you sort of dig a little deeper, you come to find out that in some level, everybody understood that that document was going to be used as the equivalent of a law. And indeed it was. Now there is a new guideline out and we can talk about that if you wish. It certainly tries to soften the blow. Yes, please tell us about that because uh, as I mentioned at the beginning in my introduction, doctors I've spoken to, when they would still come on the air with me, they don't now, but uh, once in a while, one will talk to me off the air. They feel intimidated. They often feel intimidated by their supervisory bodies, like the Colleges of Physicians and Surgeons. And the Colleges of Physicians and Surgeons will tell me, no, we're not doing that. We're telling doctors they shouldn't be just aggressively uh, cutting back on, uh, on, on prescribing. But then the colleges won't come on the air and talk to me about it. So patients, as you say, I, uh, they feel abandoned. This is just a... The fewer doctors there are prescribing, the more patients there are on receiving what they require, what they need to be able to manage their pain, and uh, and and the situation just becomes more more challenging. But how is the how are the new guidelines going to improve things? Hopefully, well, let's talk about the positive first, and then talk about why doctors are so challenging to think about in this situation. The new guidelines from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention do describe dose still as a cautionary point, and they urge caution in even initiating prescription of opioids for chronic pain. And I think that's appropriate because yeah. available evidence doesn't suggest that they're routinely superior to other treatments. Right. However, the new guidelines repeatedly admonish clinicians and organizations to be cautious about how they implement them. And they also avoid bright line distinctions suggesting that a dose above a given level is always bad and below a given level is always okay. They've simply pulled that back a lot, in part because the CDC itself became aware of how badly things had gone. I think the real question is, will that alter the behavior of clinicians? And you have to realize the people who go into medicine have dedicated a large parts of their lives to trying to figure out what the rules are and honoring them. That's how we get through college and medical school and residency and establish our career. And the last thing we wanna do is lose that career. And in the areas that pertain to pain, which uh, is something we can't measure objectively, 
uh, and opioids, where there's a lot of stigma and fear, uh, our conservatism sometimes leads us to be very afraid to do anything that might look like we're stepping out of line. So we have uh, we are a little afraid to exercise independent judgment in this area. We're intimidated. And assuring physicians that they can protect their own patients will require a degree of safe harbor. Somebody has to step forward and say, either in Canada or in the U.S., here are, th- here are situations where we will back you up. We will protect you. We'll provide resources to help you care for your more challenging patients. And we will stand by you if somebody questions the decisions you made. And right now, I do not say safe harbor on a national basis, either in the U.S. or in Canada. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting ever that opioids be the the choice of the the first choice of, of treatment. When I'm talking about patients, I'm talking about people who've been on these regimes with their physician supervision for many, many years, and suddenly they find themselves in a in an untenable situation. Also, please address this, Dr. Curtis. Um, in conversations I have, people try to make the connection between the opioid prescription medication for a patient, chronic pain patient, that's been, the prescription's been active for years, and the opioid um, illegal opioids sold on the streets, the street drugs that cost lives. Would you please um, address that? Because I find myself in, in waters far deeper than I can negotiate. Sure. Um, I think it's fair to say that there are people who receive prescribed opioids where some portion of what they received made it into the illicit market between the years 2005 and 2012, and I'm sure there's still people who get prescriptions today who find a way or who allow some of their pills to be taken and diverted to an illicit market. So in the United States, at least, it was not uncommon for patients to receive, you know, 150 or 200 tablets of something, use some and sell the rest. And of course, that presumably contributed to some degree of emerging interest in using those drugs illicitly uh, in our country. Uh, and of course, some patients who received opioids weren't necessarily benefiting from them uh, in the way that we'd want either. So there's some contributory role to the very aggressive prescribing. Any it, the, a massive increase in the supply probably did include influence the course of a public health problem. However, it's not so simple as to say that most of the people dying or most of the overdoses happened among pain patients receiving their own prescriptions. That was never demonstrably true, not here and not in Canada. So when we made our prescriptions, the focal point of a and lot I, of Dr. Curtis, I apologize. I haven't been watching the clock, and we have about 30 seconds. Sure. The main thing I would say is that we need to ask for uh, mercy and safe harbor for the doctors and safe harbor for the patients to protect them in the context of a massive correction that's happening. Yeah. And we've, we've made a grievous error uh, by them. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 